Mike. Lauren. Mike, if you had to choose just one browser to use for the rest of your days, and this is your choice, this is not a tech company is sort of forcing a browser upon you, which browser would you choose? Uh, part of me wants to say links because I would love <laughs> to just enjoy the web with text only. But I think the practical side of me is going to have to say Chrome. Wow. I yeah. mean, you went for the obvious choice. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the default on the web right now. What if I told you that you should maybe reconsider DuckDuckGo? I would say DuckDuck maybe. <laughs> All right. Well, we're <laughs> going to talk about that today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And we're also joined today by Wired senior writer Matt Burgess, who's joining us from the UK. Hey, Matt. Hi. Good to be here. Is this your debut on the Gadget Lab? I think it is. It is. Right? Yeah, it is. It's very exciting. Uh, well, if Matt's voice sounds a little bit familiar to all of you, it's probably because you've heard it on the Wired podcast, which is hosted by our colleagues in the UK. Um, and Matt is joining us via Zoom here on the dark side. I guess I should say the rainy side. It's very rainy in San Francisco today. Yeah, it's a little wet. It's a little wet. Uh, but today we're not talking about the weather. We're talking about browsers. Browsers, you say. Boring. Okay, but before you tune out or decide to listen to another podcast... This is really important. I mean, a lot of you may just fire up your laptop or tap on your phone and you go search for something without really thinking about which browser you're using, which honestly is probably what some of the tech companies want for you just to default to their browser on your device. But browsers are hugely important in tech land, both historically and now. While, of course, there were browsers before it, the launch of Netscape back in the 90s really changed the way people used this relatively new thing called the World Wide Web. And then in the following years, Microsoft underwent a lengthy legal battle over accusations that it was abusing its market power because of the way it handled its web browser on computers. Okay, but today we're in a whole new era. There are a few more browsers than that. And still, it's a fierce competition for all of them to become better and faster and more secure and less of a battery hog. So in the second half of the show, we're going to go over some tips for making the most of your browser. But first, Matt, you just wrote a story for Wired about a new alternative browser developed by DuckDuckGo. And DuckDuckGo is a company that says it focuses on privacy, um, which means it offers search and browsing tools that don't just siphon up every last scrap of your data. Um, Matt, what is DuckDuckGo's new pitch here? And, and could this really put a dent in Mike's beloved Chrome? So yeah, people may know DuckDuckGo best as a privacy-focused search engine. It's been around for more than a decade or so and has had a few mobile browsing apps for years. But this week it launched, as you said, its first desktop browser. And some people would say that is very long overdue. DuckDuckGo's pitch essentially is the company doesn't track you and it wants to make privacy simple. It doesn't think that people should talk about privacy in terms of understanding all the settings. It should just be one click, DuckDuckGo says. And essentially... It doesn't collect user data and it makes money through contextual ads. And now it's got this browser, which is used on desktops for the first time and very much is part of a trend of browsers that are trying to protect people's privacy a little bit more. So how does it make money through contextual ads? Contextual, I guess, meaning like it's it's based on your activity on the web without collecting your user data. 
Yeah, so DuckDuckGo's search engine is the vast uh, majority of where its money comes from. And these contextual ads very much come from the types of searches you're doing. So if you search for cars, you'll see a bunch of adverts that are based around cars, essentially. And it isn't based on your very specific interests, which Google's business model does a lot more targeted ads. Um, and since DuckDuckGo has been around for more than a decade, it's been making a profit from this and says that this is a better approach. And it's trying to bring that sort of level of uh, not knowing about specific users into its browser as well. So the browser that it's just put out is coming with a various bunch of features that basically block ad trackers that follow you around on the web. Um, it also shows you how many of these trackers it's blocking at each time. And it includes uh, a bunch of features that we're probably pretty used to in web browsers now, such as built-in features for saving passwords and other aspects like that, really. So if it has the, um, the ad tracking transparency and the ad blocking and the password manager, what does it not have? What are the things in your experience using it that you thought that it still needs in order to be a true competitive player in the browser space? So this browser that we've got at the moment is actually still a beta. Um, so it's just hit max. There's still a Windows version that's later to come, and then there'll obviously be a sort of full public rollout. And while the browser does seem actually pretty fast to me in the sort of testing that I've been doing, there is also just a bunch of things that feel like they're missing at this stage. The biggest one of those is probably extensions. So DuckDuckGo says that it is working on adding extensions into the browser, but at the second, there aren't any. And for me, during the testing that I've been doing around this, one of the big things that I've missed is a separate password manager that I use, which either in sort of Chrome or Brave or other browsers, you can just install the extension and then basically just click straight onto that to do the password manager pasting your details into a website. And there's also uh, one of the other big features for that side of things for me is translating stuff. So I've been doing a lot of reporting around Ukraine and Russia at the moment. And that's obviously meant looking at um, materials that aren't in English and sort of having a browser extension that can essentially just translate that for you straight away is something that is super useful that just DuckDuckGo doesn't have at this second. So Matt, a lot of these browsers actually use underlying technology that's built by other tech companies. So talk about things like Chromium and WebKit and how that works and what it means when a company comes out with a new browser, but it's still using someone else's tech. One of the really interesting things in this space is actually that because Chrome is so widespread, a lot of people don't necessarily think about the browser that they're using. But even if they are using one of uh, the alternative rivals that exists out there, there is a good chance they'll be using part of Google's product. So a lot of browsers in this space, including Microsoft's Edge browser and also the Brave browser and a few of the other ones as well that are sort of very popular, use Chromium or Fork chromium which is google's open source code base for its browsers so a lot of the browser tech that exists in this space is very much built off of that which means that it has even though it is open source it's primarily maintained by google and google is the company that has its fingerprints over sort of how a lot of this browser code works while that's like super useful for building out this technology because it's it's hard tech to build and if you're using chromium for instance you can import other extensions that have been built using that standard. It does mean that it decreases the competition in the market, really. Mm -hmm. So DuckDuckGo isn't using Chromium. It says that it, it Google's values don't really align with its values around data collection and tracking users. So it has built its browser on top of WebKit, which is Apple's 
browser technology. So it's one of the only companies that's not using Chromium. Firefox is another one that is in this space that has built its own browser engine over the years. But really, the sort of like competition in this space is very much non-existent. So in your story, you spoke to a source at DuckDuckGo who referred to uh, Google's browser not only as not aligning with uh, their their company's values, but also just with a lot of code that they don't need and sort of a it's, it's sort of a bloated rendering engine. Chromium is sort of a bloated rendering engine. And it's funny to think about that because we don't necessarily think of Chrome as being bloated, right? When Chrome came on the scene some 14 years ago, 15 years ago, it was uh, very fast and very light on its feet. But now, as most browsers do over the years, it gains features, it becomes more bloated, and it starts to be a memory hog, and it starts to be a real resource mm-hmm. hog on the computer. So, you know, it's it's just interesting to think about that, like, every browser that starts out being a slim, svelte browser ends up being a fat and bloated and slow browser. Yeah, it's one of those interesting things where over time they develop, they're just adding more and more features. But I think the thing with Chrome is it's still obviously the world's most popular browser. Most people use it online, whether it's on their desktop or on their mobiles. But because of that as well, just adding extra features means that the company has managed to sort of keep it popular in people's views. People obviously don't really think a lot about their browser they're using either. But you've also got this element of Chrome sort of dictates a little bit the standards in web browsers. So this is sort of really into the weeds of some of the technical side of this. But when companies are talking about how we're displaying content online and how we're seeing articles and how browsers are working, all of those sort of standards committees that exist that talk about how these things should operate, because Google Chrome is so dominant across the whole market, it's got this overall sort of like dominance in these discussions as well. And lots of other companies and and organizations do take part in these discussions too. But at the end of the day, when you've got Chrome is being used by so many people around the world, actually the sort of the dominance that it has in this space means that it's going to have a sort of outsized voice in a lot of these discussions. I don't want to keep going back to the same point, but it really does strike me whenever we do a report on browsers or I'm reading about browsers that this is not a, a very strictly verticalized competition. It's not just like, oh, should I use Firefox or Safari or Chrome or now DuckDuckGo? Um, it's like they're all kind of using each other's tech, right? Or in some cases, they may have deals with Google to get paid for using Google's search engine as the fundamental tech that's in its browser. Um, And then, of course, we've talked about Chromium and WebKit and how that is like the underlying code base for a lot of these. And those are, it's just, um, yeah, the tentacles are really deep. They, They reach really far and deep when it comes to the browser world. And so still, ultimately, like a lot of it's just going back to Google. It is. And you've got this, I think in recent years, we have seen this bigger push from rivals, both in the browser space, but also sort of in the search space as well to be competing with Google and trying to offer something that is slightly different to what it's doing. And that's how we get to a situation where you've got DuckDuckGo that launched a decade or so ago, and it launched as a search engine, and now it's offering a search engine and a browser. Um, And that's the same with one of the other rivals in this space, Brave, which launched a few years ago, but initially that started with a browser and now 
has launched a search engine. So I think that companies that are trying to focus on privacy and sort of decrease the amount of tracking by default that is happening as we browse the web every day, they're sort of like trying to differentiate themselves by really trying to stand out and do something different from Google. But they're also just trying to offer the full package of what they're doing as well. Um, So you're seeing with these companies, they're offering more and more services. And essentially, they're going to become more rounded out companies over time if they can keep making profits. And it wouldn't surprise me that if we saw some of these competitors in this space actually move way beyond browsers and search engines in the future and possibly move into such things such as email and all of those types of other features that sort of also come packaged with the browser a little bit. So Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about Chrome, for instance, there's also when you're using it as a browser and a search engine, there's the there's the maps feature and all of these other services that come as part of it that complement each other. So I think that over time, we're going to see more and more of these sort of privacy focused services spreading their wings. And that sounds like a good thing. Mm-hmm. Until Elon Musk comes in and says he wants to buy one. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Matt for his browser tips and share some of our own. So chances are you're probably using Google Chrome, like my friend Mike here. Uh, Somewhere between 60 and 70% of people on the web are browsing the web with Chrome, which works out to something like 3 billion people. But in addition to being the most popular browser, it's also a massive resource hog on your computer. And, uh, you know, it's Google, so it sure does love collecting your data. But luckily, there are some ways to control, you know, how Chrome and other browsers work on your computer and your phone. Um, Also, it's not just about Chrome. As we've talked about, there are other options. So um, let's go through some of our tips for best browser practices. Matt, let's start with you. What are your what are your go-tos? So I'm somebody that actually uses a bunch of different browsers and it's partly I guess because of the job but also just in that way that I am far too sort of like in detail about the services that I'm trying to use. So I'll be using sometimes Chrome on on my computer, sometimes Brave, sometimes Safari on iPhone, definitely always Safari at this stage. And they all have a few different settings. But the thing that like irks me the most about um, browsers and particularly on desktop is when uh, websites have it set up so uh, they can offer to try and send you notifications. So you might arrive on a site and it'll be like, this site wants to send you a notification about its latest news stories or other deals or things that are going on and for me that's just like one of those things that is super irritating so (laughs) I think pretty much always one of the first things that I do on any browser where this is an option is go into the settings and turn that off as a entirely yeah you are not alone yeah yeah and and linked to that actually is the other the biggest scourge that's been plaguing the internet for the last few years is the cookie pop-ups which are just the most frustrating thing and like I write about privacy a lot and the way that these pop-ups are just there all the way all the time and asking you do you want to accept or change the other settings it's very rarely like accept or deny they just are very infuriating so a bunch of the 
things that I do to change this is there are extensions that you can have to actually just sort of automatically handle these settings and try to take those pop-ups away and select the minimum settings possible. Um, but also one of the new things with the DuckDuckGo browser, and I think this is the only browser that is actually doing this, is it's got that feature inbuilt as well. So if you give it consent when you start using your using the browser for the first time, then it will actually just wipe these cookies from you ever seeing them. So it will automatically in the background just select the minimum possible options and you'll just never see any of these pop-ups again on the sites that it's working on. I love that idea. Yeah, so I'm sure like every website has sort of a different uh, user flow for accepting or rejecting cookies or setting cookie settings. So in your experience, when you've used both this new feature in DuckDuckGo and the extensions in the other browsers that you mentioned, how, uh, like, what's the success rate? How often do you actually have to go and like manually set cookies and how often does it happen automatically? So with DuckDuckGo's new feature, it says that it's doing about sort of 50% of sites at the moment. And from my sort of like testing of its browser, that seems about right so far. But on other browsers where I've been using extension, it's probably been a little bit higher than that as well. And one of the sort of like beauties of these types of systems that can eliminate these pop-ups from happening is the way that the pop-ups are designed. They all work on the sort of like same frameworks where they can ask the same questions and base, be based on the same underlying system and pretty much provided by third parties. So now that we're seeing a few more options to disable these cookie pop-ups in general, I reckon that we're probably going to see sort of like a bit more of a wider rollout from other browsers in this space and uh, probably a little bit more sort of like just people actually being able to get around them and not see them as much. It's kind of remarkable to think about how much time and thought went into GDPR and now we're already at the stage where we're like, please, let's just automate this process. <laughs> These pop-ups, pop-ups are so awful. Mike, what are your tips for making the most out of your browser? Well, you know, I always encourage people to use a password manager, of course. Like, we've, we've written many stories about it and we talk about it on the show a lot. Password managers are a great step towards increasing your privacy on the web. But I have been using Chrome's built-in password manager, which I know is not ideal because, you know, browser makers have a lot of different things that they need to pay attention to, and they may not put as much attention into their password manager as a software company that is just doing password management. However, uh, I was using 1Password for a while. I had problems getting the autofill to work in apps on my phone. I use an Android phone, so it just sort of is built in, and the convenience can't be beat. And I know that there's probably a lot of people who are groaning and who are yelling at me right now, but that's just the reality of my life. Uh, I tried to use an outside password manager, but I have just defaulted to using Chrome's password manager. So I would say that my advice to people is that if you are not using a password manager and you keep getting prompted to allow Chrome to save your passwords for you and for some reason you are not doing it, I think it's okay to just start doing that. Just let Chrome manage your passwords for you. It will recommend new passwords to you that are very strong and that are good, and it will alert you to whenever a password of yours may have been compromised somewhere on the web so that you can go and change it and then will help you get a new, stronger password for that website. So if you're ever using a device where you're not using Chrome and you need to log in, can you easily access the Chrome password manager to then copy and paste and bring it over to whatever, wherever you need to authenticate? Easily? 
is not a word that I would use. Okay. Uh, but if you take that word out, then then my answer to your <laughs> you question is yes, I can do you it. Can so technically do it on okay. the Android phone. If you go into settings, there's a few steps that you can do to unlock your your passwords and see them, and then manually input them. Yes. Okay. That that's a good one. What are some of your other tips? Um, I use HTTPS Everywhere, which is an extension that uh, forces a website to load over a secure HTTP connection uh, if there is one available. Uh, if it's not, it tells you that the website does not offer that and gives you the option of not going there or just going there anyway, which I like. Another one that I use, which I honestly just like can't live without, is Minimal Twitter. Uh, I've used it as a recommendation on the show before. It's an extension. It's available for the major browsers. Uh, it's by a gentleman named Thomas Wang. And it is, uh, a, it's a browser extension that basically redraws Twitter however you want it. So you can choose how wide the content well is. You can deselect all of the features like trending topics and suggested users that you follow, ads, all kinds of things. Um, you can even make like the search the search function appear and disappear. You can basically set up Twitter as minimal as you like it, which is like, that's candy for me. I think that, you know, these big social platforms have way too much going on that are, you know, decisions that the designers have made just to drive engagement and really have nothing to do with like how I like to use the application. So any extension that allows me to make a website as simple and as minimal as possible is something that I love. So I would definitely recommend that extension. What about you? All right, I'm going to sound like an Apple sheep. <laughs> uh, but for the most part, I'm using Safari these days. And it does have its downsides. Um, it's slow. That's just one. And another downside is how much it forces you to try to use Safari passwords. So you're describing your experience with just defaulting to Chrome, mm -hmm. storing your passwords. Safari constantly tries to do this. And I use a third-party password manager. And I feel as though I have to tell Safari so many times that, no, I do not want to use its suggested strong password. And it's primarily because, like, I don't want that thing to happen in the future where I'm on Chrome or I'm on another device without Safari and I have to go try to retrieve those passwords and I don't really know how to get to them or how to find them. So I prefer to use a third-party password manager. And then more recently, Safari has also made it easy to see who or what is tracking you. So in the past, I used Ghostery when I wrote a feature for Wired that ran last year about all the ways in which I was being just tracked across the web um, after I was planning a wedding, which I canceled, which you should read the story. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I had been using Ghostery to try to figure out what was happening during that process. And now Safari actually has a lot of those features built in. I mean, Safari is not the only one. We've talked about this. But in general, these browsers are getting better about telling you, here's how you're being tracked. Here are the sort of the most you know offensive um, versions of this. And so... Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I just I, I should probably do what Matt is doing and use different browsers more often. But it's most for me, it's mostly Safari and Chrome. And then I would say my biggest tip for safe and better browsing in general is just to be careful with extensions. People love their browser extensions. They do make life easier. I was using Instapapers for a while, which is great for when you're, you see an article that you know you want to read, but you don't have the time, store it for later. Like I said, I used Ghostery's browser extension for a while. Uh, but their permissions can be really, really aggressive. I recently went to go use the, I think it was MetaMask. It might have been Trust Wallet. It was one of the um, Crypto cryptocurrency wallets. wallets. And I went to go install it. And the permissions were just incredible. It was like, you know, once you install this on your browser, we have permission to read, write, change, alter, 
do anything we want with your data as you're browsing. And I was like, uh, nope, absolutely not. Um, and so, yeah, and permissions are kind of a pet peeve of mine in terms of just their overreach. So yeah, be careful with browser extensions. And if they if their permissions are a little bit too aggressive, just don't use the browser extension as much as you think it's going to make life easier. Speaking of extensions, uh, Matt, just to go back to DuckDuckGo for a second, uh, it's in beta now, but do we know when the browser is going to get extensions? So they said that at the moment they're looking into building in ways for extensions to work without compromising people's privacy or any of those types of settings uh, or permissions that we were just talking about. So it's not one that is got a date on it yet, but it's something they're looking at and going to be potentially at some point in the future. As as somebody who's been trialing this out for a, uh, a few days, I would hope that it comes when they get to the first actual launch and this goes out of beta, but it is still undetermined, I'm afraid. All right, let's take another quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to do our recommendations. All right, Matt, as our guest of honor this week, what is your recommendation? When coming on the show, this was the bit that gave me the most anxiety actually coming up (laughs) with something that may not be like super weird. So I've gone with the... um, easy option of a book. And the book is A Woman in the Polar Night, which is a book about uh, an Austrian painter called Christian Ritter who traveled to a remote Arctic island in 1934. And this is basically her memoir of when she was living uh, in a little hut with her husband and uh, another researcher and is quite like gripping in terms of uh, being one of the only people at that time to live in this really remote Arctic space and sort of hunting down polar bears and all of that that comes with Uh, living totally off-grid. Wow, I want to read this. I want to do it. I just want to live it. Go off Twitter forever. (laughs) (laughs) These days, I bet you could probably still get Twitter on a remote polar Arctic island. So the other choice that I was going to bring on is something that, as it's turned to spring, like the last couple of weeks, uh, I have completely uh, loved. And it's pomegranate seeds, just like in so many salads and all of that, just like sprinkling a handful of pomegranate seeds in there, um, just for a bit of extra health and sort of like springtime feeling. Oh, that's a delightful recommendation. What is your method for harvesting the seeds? Is it knife or is it spoon or is it something else? It's mostly just getting them in a pre-packaged uh, <laughs> <laughs> pot so a total cop out basically best answer good call uh thank you matt for those excellent recommendations what's your recommendation mike okay so we have wedding season coming up right this is the spring yes people are getting married we're having weddings again we are having weddings again so you're probably going to get invited to a wedding or two or seven this summer so my recommendation is to give cash this is something that not a lot of people do uh i I should say not enough people do Mm -hmm. uh there's always a wedding registry and i can almost guarantee you that the person whose wedding you are attending does not actually need or want that fancy cutting board or the kitchen set or the crystal decanter in fact the thing that would bring them the most joy and the most utility is a 50 dollars bill or a 100 dollars bill I think either one of those amounts is acceptable to give as a wedding guest. If you're invited to a wedding and you show up with a gift, you get a money card 
or you go to Chinatown in your in your town and you get those little red envelopes that you can use to give money and you put a large denomination bill in that envelope and you just give that as your gift instead of the thing. It's also helpful if you're flying to the wedding. You don't need to worry about carrying a gift. Mm-hmm. You don't need to worry about shipping a gift. Some people would say that it's tacky to give cash. I completely disagree. I think it is classier to give cash than it is to give a gift. I totally agree with you. We've talked about this before. I think this is a very East Coast thing. And we both grew up on the East Coast. And oh, I don't know. I, know. I feel like it was fairly standard when I was going to weddings. You know, To give cash? Well, that people would give cash. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's fallen out of favor for some reason. I yeah. think, you know, it's just because like ordering things on the internet is so easy and there's always, you know, wedding registries and everybody puts a lot of thought into their wedding registry. And not to disparage anybody who puts a lot of thought into their wedding registry, of but course. I'm going to give you cash. Right. Especially if the couple is a little bit older. Yeah. Like when I was getting married, we we already like each had our own sort yeah. of kitchen gear yeah. and all the things and we had combined them already and like all the things that and so it was like what I mean, I guess you could use it as an opportunity to upgrade on the registry. But yeah, cash is always welcome. Yes. I miss weddings. <laughs> it's been like two years since I've been to one. I really have to get invited to, to weddings again. Is that your is it your recommendation this week? Go to more weddings? Yeah. Like I want to be I should be a wedding crasher. <laughs> That'd be so fun. Wow. Yeah. I think I did not appreciate them as much in the before times. And now I'm yeah. like, that sounds really fun. Sure. I'm available for weddings. <laughs> Just think of all the lobster bisque. Oh, What's your uh, recommendation? Okay. I, I really am going to sound like an Apple fan on this podcast <laughs> this week. But this week, my recommendation is Apple TV+. Plus. I um, Here's this non sequitur. I got COVID recently. And fortunately, um, I was very lucky and I was okay. But I did, you know, sit in a room for a bit and nap and watch a lot of streaming TV and I ended up watching, I'm still not totally done with We Crashed because the season has not ended, but I ended up watching more We Crashed. I ended up watching all of Severance, which is completely fantastic, directed by Ben Stiller. It's um, it's really weird. It's a slow build, but it's it's got a lot of really important themes about work and our relationships to work. And then um, and then I uh, I figured you know I was already in Apple TV Plus universe. Let me just keep going and uh, and I started watching the Morning Show season two, which is also good. Uh, I really like like it's personal for me because I I actually worked in morning television mm. and there's so right, much right. about that show and the characters that they get right like they just nail it. There are a couple of storylines that seem implausible to me as I'm watching it this season. Um, yeah, but it's TV. But it's TV. It's TV, and it's like this <laughs> meta thing where it's like you're watching TV about TV, and you're thinking this is the whole thing's ridiculous, but that is TV, mm-hmm. and um, and I'm enjoying that so far. So, so what you're saying is that the streaming service suddenly has a lot of good stuff on oh, it. Oh, a lot of good stuff. And there's another one. Um, gosh, I can't think of the other one right now that people are talking. They about. They had the Beastie Boys movie, which you haven't seen. It. You I haven't watch. seen that yet, but I promise, just for you, Mike, I will watch it. Well, you're telling you told me I need to watch uh, Pam and Tommy, which I also will watch. So that's on a different service. But yeah, so if you are not an Apple TV Plus subscriber, I would recommend checking it out. And I would also recommend, I mean, if you are in the Apple universe, just look into one of their bundles because they have these cloud bundles now where you pay a certain amount of money per month. I think there are three different bundles, and you could also get access to things like iCloud and photo storage and music and like fitness, which I don't love, but um, not fitness itself as a category, but <laughs> Apple Fitness Plus. Fitness app. Yeah. So um, yeah, check out Apple TV Plus if you have not done so. That's my recommendation. Sweet. All right. That's our show for this week. Matt, thank you for joining us for the first time, and we hope that you come back sometime soon. Thank you for having me. 
And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter, which is not yet owned by Elon Musk, thankfully. <laughs> Just check the show notes. We'll put our handles in there. This show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth, our very own chip. And those who watch the morning show will get it. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life or why China's targeting the U.S. dollar and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh, boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.